From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The symptoms are usually nonspecific and may be hard to pin down. And that's why ovarian cancer is often not detected until it's already spread and difficult to treat. We'll have the latest on the diagnosis and treatment of ovarian cancer, plus we'll hear from a survivor who's beaten the odds not once, but twice. It's certainly something to celebrate every day, although I try not to uh, think about the timetable too often. You know, the anxiety still is always there, but it's a great milestone to have achieved, especially given the diagnoses that many women are facing with this disease. Also on the program, how primary care doctors are treating mental health issues and 10 tips that can help you lower your high blood pressure without taking medication. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. According to the American Cancer Society, about 21,000 women will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer, cancer of the ovary this year. Now, the worst news is that about 14,000 women will die from cancer of the ovary. Ovarian cancer ranks fifth in cancer deaths among women, accounting for more deaths than any other female cancer, any other cancer of the female reproductive system. September, which is just around the corner, is National Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. In the studio to talk about diagnosing and treating cancer of the ovary is gynecologic cancer specialist Dr. Jamie Bacham Gomez. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bacham Gomez. Nice to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. Shive. That is an impressive title. So we know that you treat women with cancer, but you're even more specialized than that, aren't you? Correct. Uh, I'm a gynecologic oncologist, which means that I care for women who have cancer of the female reproductive tract, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer. And of those, cancer of the ovary is the one that, that we hear about because it's difficult to treat, often diagnosed late. Tell us, uh, for those who don't know, where the ovaries are located. So the ovaries are paired organs in the pelvis. They're located right next to the uterus, quite deep in the pelvis. In fact, uh, when, a, when a woman goes in for her well woman exam, um, they can be occasionally felt uh, through a pelvic exam. That's why we do pelvic exams. Oh, you can actually feel the, the ovaries, I assume, in, a, in thinner women. In thinner women, you can feel them. Um, if they're enlarged, uh, you can feel them, and that's why we do recommend pelvic exams in women, uh, especially if they're having a symptom such as pelvic fullness or, or pain. So when women have a pap smear, and actually they don't have a pap smear as often as they used to, right? Correct. But then you usually also do an exam of the reproductive tract and might detect a mass in the ovary at that time. Correct. So the uh, well woman exam is often a paired uh, exam of the pap smear, which is just evaluating the cervix for abnormalities with uh, with a test that's performed in the or that's collected in the office scraping cells off the cervix and that actually doesn't really have anything to do with ovarian cancer um, it's very rare that we would pick up an ovarian cancer that way and then the other portion is that of palpating the uterus and the ovaries which sit right next to it this is a difficult disease to to detect and and to catch early and why is that other than the fact that the ovaries are so deep inside Correct. Um, the symptoms of ovarian cancer can be quite vague. Um, they can mimic a variety of other uh, diagnoses or other conditions. Uh, the symptoms include abdominal bloating or pelvic fullness, bowel changes, bladder changes, um, and getting full fully, full early or quickly when you're eating, such as you're know, very hungry but start eating and, and get full quickly. 
And I suspect that most of those symptoms are caused by something else. And ovarian cancer is quite a ways down on the list of things that could cause those symptoms. It can be. There are these are symptoms that um, you know that if you talk to a woman, she may tell you that she has these symptoms um, intermittently throughout the month. They can be caused by a variety of other things. Um, but even advanced stage ovarian cancer can be quite vague in the symptoms that it presents with. And it's a rare cancer. For example, we just mentioned 21,000 cases a year compared to, what, two or 300,000 cases of breast cancer. So it's only one-tenth as common. Correct. Um, what about risk factors? There must be uh, some women who are more likely to get ovarian cancer than others. Um, one of the greatest risk factors is a family history. Um, we know that about 20% of women who develop an ovarian cancer actually have a gene that's associated with it, a gene that they inherited from one of their parents. Um, so family history is extremely important uh, when it comes to determining risk factors for ovarian cancer. So if you do have a strong family history or a family history of ovarian cancer, uh, we do recommend that you be evaluated, that a woman be evaluated by a genetic counselor. And if the the offspring, the woman who has a family history of ovarian cancer, has that gene, what does it mean? It means that her offspring have a 50% chance of also inheriting that gene. If they inherit the gene, it's not a 100% chance that they're going to develop a cancer associated with it, but they're at much higher risk of developing a cancer associated with it than the general population. All right, family history, other risk factors? Other risk factors include um, the, the term we use is nulliparity, which means not having children. Um, not having giving birth to children. Breastfeeding appears to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. The use of birth control pills appears to reduce the risk of ovarian really? cancer. Yes. And, and what's the reason for that? Do we know? I think there are a couple of different hypotheses behind it, but um, and one may be related to um, uh, reducing the number of times that the ovary um, ovulates. Uh, that's one hypothesis. Do most women who get breast cancer, I assume that the ovaries have, have, their job is complete? That most of these women have had their children, or does it sometime, sometimes occur in younger women? Um, the risk of ovarian cancer increases with age, just like we see with, with most cancers. And the average age of diagnosis is around 62 to 63, um, which means that most women are, are postmenopausal when they're diagnosed. But we certainly do see this cancer develop in women of younger ages, especially women who have inherited uh, the BRCA1 gene, which is um, one of the most common genes associated with ovarian cancer. Is there ever a reason to prophylactically remove the ovaries, particularly in those women who have this uh, abnormal gene? Yes. The only thing that has been proven to reduce the mortality of ovarian cancer among women who are at high risk, which would be those women who carry a gene associated with developing ovarian cancer, uh, the only thing that's been shown to reduce mortality from ovarian cancer is having risk-reducing surgery, meaning prophylactically or preventatively having your ovaries and fallopian tubes removed before you develop a cancer. Fallopian um, tubes, the tubes that go between the ovary down into the uterus. Yes. What about screening and diagnosis? You, you're seeing a woman who has the one or more of the symptoms that you suggested. How do you find out for sure that she has ovarian cancer? Well, Certainly, if a woman is symptomatic, she should have an evaluation with her with her primary care provider um, or a gynecologist. And that evaluation usually involves a pelvic exam, can involve an ultrasound to look better and more closely at the ovaries. And this part of the exam would also include a transvaginal ultrasound where the probe is actually placed in the vagina 
And the reason we do that is you can actually see the ovaries so much better because you're right up next to them. And then occasionally uh, we would also do a CA-125 test if there's a mass detected. All right, and then you ultimately biopsy the mass to be sure that's what it is? So if there is a mass that's detected, it's usually recommended that it be removed rather than biopsied because rupturing it can increase the stage. Uh, So if you strongly suspect that that's what it is, you just take it out. Correct. What about treatment? I know you wish the treatment was better than it is because 14,000 women every year die of this disease, but how do you treat this condition other than surgery? Absolutely. About 95% of women with an ovarian cancer need to be treated with surgery and chemotherapy. It's a combination treatment. The only patients that we don't give chemotherapy to are those that develop it and have it diagnosed at a very early stage, stage 1A, um, because their survival is is excellent and the toxicity of chemotherapy outweighs any benefit from getting it in that early stage. But 95% chemo and surgery. Do you? I know you give chemotherapy systemically, intravenously. Do you also give it into the abdomen sometimes? Yes. So it can be given completely intravenously, um, or it can be given as a combination of intravenous as well as into the abdomen. We don't give it simply only into the abdomen. It's a combination therapy if we're going to be utilizing that. All right. To finish up, the bottom line, you've mentioned that the symptoms can be uh, subtle, often missed, and that's the reason that the condition can be so advanced when women are finally diagnosed. What are those symptoms once again? Those symptoms are abdominal bloating or pain or discomfort, um, change in bowel function, change in bladder function, and the term is early satiety, meaning getting full fast when you're eating a meal. Any of those symptoms, see your doctor. Any of those symptoms and they persist, see your doctor. All right, Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez, gynecologic cancer specialist, a woman's cancer specialist of the reproductive tract. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Shives. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from an ovarian cancer survivor who uses storytelling to help women manage their cancer and their lives. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. September is National Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and we've been talking with gynecologic cancer specialist Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez about diagnosing and treating ovarian cancer. Now we'll talk to someone who has survived ovarian cancer and has first-hand experience with the disease. She is Cynthia Weiss, and she was first diagnosed with ovarian cancer 10 years ago. Cindy is a Mayo Clinic Public Affairs Specialist whose storytelling work is part of cancer therapy offered to patients at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Welcome to the program, Cindy. Nice to have you. Thank you, Dr. Shives. Nice to be here. Well, must feel good to be alive. Huh? Many women who have had this disease have not, unfortunately, survived it. Welcome. Thank you. It's certainly something to celebrate every day, although I try not to uh, think about the timetable too often. You know, the anxiety still is, is always there, but... Um, but it's a great milestone to uh, to have achieved, especially given the diagnoses that many women are facing with this disease. So it's been 10 years. Uh, so tell us about your original uh, diagnosis and, and your presentation. What symptoms you had? Um, well, like um, we heard earlier, I had very vague symptoms. I actually had bloating of the abdomen, um, fullness. And what really sent me to the physician, actually, was um, bladder pain. Um, not in the sense of a traditional urinary tract infection, but just a significant abdominal pain that really was reinforced um, when I went to use the uh, to, to use the restroom. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it really was an interesting ride trying to get an appropriate diagnosis. Um, I had one physician tell me I had fibroids, but yet I had just had a clean GYN um, exam about six weeks earlier. All right, just uh, one second. Let me interrupt you because Dr. Bakam Gomez is still here. Fibroids. What, what does that mean? Well, fibroids are a benign muscle, t- muscle tumor of the uterus. Very common. Depending on the literature that you read, they're anywhere from 40% to 70% of the female population. And they really, are, they're not a risk factor for ovarian cancer, but they can, they're a mass that can occupy the pelvis as well. So uh, they thought you had fibroids of the uterus when in fact it uh, turned out that you had ovarian cancer. So what happened next? So I ended up having uh, a very large ovarian cyst, a mass removed from my right ovary and um, you know, the long and the short of it is I went through a couple of different uh, diagnostics and ultimately had a uh, radical hysterectomy, um, underwent chemotherapy and seven weeks of pelvic radiation. But unlike a lot of the statistics, um, I was 33 years old at the time, not married, wow. no children. So I really didn't fit um, the mold. And I was re-diagnosed again um, about two years later in 2007. Wow, age 33. How many women do you see with ovarian cancer age 33? Age 33 is pretty uncommon to see ovarian cancer. However, we do, and we see we can see ovarian cancer in women even younger than that, too. All right, so you had the uh, ovary removed. And by the way, she mentioned that she had radiation as part of her treatment. We didn't, you didn't mention that earlier when we talked about uh, ovarian cancer treatment. Correct. Um, uh, radiation is not a typical treatment for ovarian cancer these days. Uh, it was back in the 1990s uh, and earlier before we had more effective chemotherapy regimens. And, and so it's, it's, it's not the typical addition to chemo or to uh, chemotherapy and surgery. So you had surgery plus radiation. I did. And part of, um, again, my strange and, and, you know, varied path was originally we weren't sure if I had uh, cervical cancer initially as a primary cancer or ovarian cancer. Um, so cervical cancer that had spread to your ovaries spread. they were suspecting? And radiation, as I understand it, is a very common treatment for um, cervical cancer as opposed to chemotherapy. So I elected to have both therapies concurrently. Um, it was only after a recurrence in 2007 that I underwent additional chemotherapy. Um, I had a metastasis to my liver and abdomen. No kidding. And we were able to reconfirm it was absolutely um, ovarian cancer. Um, at that time. But. So did you have surgery on your liver or just chemo? I did not. I just was able to go through chemotherapy at that point in time, thankfully. Wow. And doing well. So um, knock on wood, you know, everything is, is, is going very well. And I'm able to share my experience with other folks, particularly in my role um, in public affairs at Mayo Clinic and talk with other cancer patients and cancer survivors to help advocate for questions they may not know, not just for ovarian cancer patients, but all cancer patients, all patients that come to Mayo Clinic. Um, everyone has a story. But for me and just the path that I took, if I hadn't asked questions, I'm not really sure where I would have ended up. What advice do you have for women who have just been diagnosed with ovarian cancer or, or other female cancers? What do you tell them? You know, looking back to when I was first diagnosed, there really weren't a lot of resources available to me. There wasn't um, an ovarian cancer support group in the town that I was in. There wasn't even a gynecologic cancer support group except for one that I found online. You know, as you said earlier, it's not as common as, let's say, the one in eight diagnosis of women with breast cancer. Yeah, it's only um, about a, t- a tenth as common. So I really needed to search. Um, so I think the advice that I have for, for anyone really diagnosed with any type of cancer or illness is, first, 
ask questions. Ask questions of your physician. I think sometimes we're so focused on the diagnosis and what we just heard that we can't really digest what's being told. Um, we're going to have questions. We shouldn't be afraid to ask them because we need to be educated to be a part of the therapy process to be engaged. And then I would recommend seeking out someone that has also gone through the journey. Your journey is not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, my cancer is different than someone else's. But together you can share some commonalities and maybe appreciate or understand a little bit more. Let me give you an example. Um, my hair did fall out the first time I had chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I know that that's happening. No one told me that my head was actually going to hurt when the hair follicles died. <laughs> and I remember going on a family outing in the fall, the wind's blowing, and I'll be darned, my head hurt so bad every time the wind blew across my hair. And it's just something like that. If I had known, I would have been better prepared to deal with it. But that's a little tip I give to people that I meet who are just starting chemo. Mm-hmm. So they're not afraid. Um, something to bind you together. It's unfortunate we make friends and, and uh, you know, meet so many faces, unfortunately, going through cancer these days. But I think that that commonality gives us a bond that will only help strengthen us as we try to find a cure for this. Well, it, it's very interesting. So you do this for uh, patients who have just been diagnosed or are going through uh, treatment at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville. Is there someone like you here in Rochester? Well, I think there's a whole team of us here in Rochester and Arizona. Um, you know, we really do try to share um, experiences through storytelling and through the different uh, vehicles that we do have. And I know Rochester, there are patient advocates, which are a great resource for patients as well. Um, and I had the opportunity to meet one of them on my last trip to Rochester, who was very engaged in some of the research process. Uh, progress. So I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of it and share those things. And I know that there's a lot of research coming up as well to hopefully help us find new treatments and, and a cure. And especially uh, to find it early, just like all cancers. No screening test available for this disease, right, Dr. Bakun-Gomez? There is not a current screening test available for this. There is a very large, there's actually two large studies going on right now in the United Kingdom on ovarian cancer screening, one in the general population, one in high-risk women, um, and we're hoping to have results from those within the next year or two. All right, Cindy Weiss, thanks so much for being with us. Cindy is Senior Public Affairs Specialist at Mayo Clinic, Jacksonville, Florida. And thanks to Gynecologic Cancer Specialist, Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez, for filling us in on the latest regarding diagnosis and treatment of ovarian cancer. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, family medicine doctors deal with a lot of common health problems, but not all of them are physical. Anxiety, depression, and family dysfunction rank high on the list. And 10 ways to manage your high blood pressure without taking medication. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Good news in the fight against cancer. I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. A team of Mayo experts has found the code that may allow them to turn off cancer cells. 
The next step is to figure out how to deliver this therapy to patients. And researchers from Brown University found more evidence that the seasonal flu vaccine really does make a difference. You see, each year, experts try to match the vaccine with the strain of flu they think will hit. The study confirmed the closer the match, the more lives are saved. And experts in Canada want to be sure people don't avoid getting their vaccinations. They've drafted guidelines on how to administer shots to make them less painful. And also, here's heads up for head lice, just in time for school, drug-resistant lice have been found in 25 states, according to a new study out of Southern Illinois University. Each year, millions of school kids get head lice, and the CDC says it's not due to poor hygiene, but because the kids are in close contact, making it easier for the lice to travel. The good news is that head lice do not carry disease. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shaw. And I'm Tracy McRae. When we think of reasons for going to see a family doctor, they'd likely include a nasty cold or a cough or the flu or a sore back or maybe indigestion that won't go away. (laughs) And while, while all of those are reasons to see your family medicine specialist, it actually turns out that anxiety and depression are also often what brings people into the office. Here to talk about treating anxiety, depression, and family dysfunction is a primary in the primary care setting is Mayo Clinic family medicine specialist, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Welcome to the program, Dr. Cozine. Thank you for having me. A lot of uh, anxious, depressed uh, people out there, huh? Absolutely true. And, you know, as you read more about anxiety and depression in the primary care setting, you find that many, many somatic concerns are actually rooted in anxiety and depression. So trying to sort that out can be quite a challenge, particularly when you say in somatic, somatic concerns. So when people come in complaining about these things or reporting these things like indigestion, fatigue, headache, dizziness, many of those things are actually related to some mental health concerns. I have to say I was really surprised because I asked you, we want to do a couple of shows on family medicine. What are some things that patients come to you with? And this is what you said was that family dysfunction, and I I like the way that you termed it that way, not depression or anxiety. I mean, you said those things too, but that family dysfunction was something that you noticed. Um, Tell me how that presents itself in your appointment. Well, oftentimes it presents in the way sometimes the questions are posed or in difficulties where having in management. One example I think I can give that might help illustrate this is the example of the elderly family member who may be struggling with anxiety and depression that's inadequately treated, is living alone, is lonesome, but family isn't quite ready to step up to the plate to help make some different arrangements for grandma or grandpa. And trying to navigate that and do what's best for the patient, both medically and socially, can be a bit of a challenge. How do you sort it all out? I mean, if they come in with uh, indigestion or think they have irritable bowel and and you sort of figure out that maybe it's more of a a, a mental health problem, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you sort it out and, and how do you go about telling the patient? First of all, listening. Spend a lot of time listening to what the patient is saying. I try not to talk for the first three or four minutes of any encounter and just see what they have to tell me. A lot of times, if you can spend the time listening to the patient, they will let you know what their concern is. I also often use the question, what is it that you're most worried about? 
And that's a great way to get at the root of what people are truly concerned about. You know, they might be having toe pain. This actually happened to me last week. A 95-year-old lady with foot pain who thought it was her heart. So trying to sort out what what it's going on is just just listen to the patient. And um, I also have the advantage of a longitudinal relationship. You know, I'm not dropping in for a single consultation. I'm seeing people over time. And so when I mention family dysfunction as something that I see on a regular basis, this is not a, a one-stop thing that I sort out in, in a single visit. This is as I get to know family members and get to know patients over you know, at this point early in my career, but already it's becoming clear that um, the longer you know somebody, the more easy it is to address concerns, even in a short amount of time. Two of the examples that you used were with elderly patients. Is that where a majority of this kind of comes in, or is are there younger situations with brand new families? Absolutely. You know, this is not a situation that's limited to one age group or, or another. You know, talk about across the life spectrum, which is exactly what what I work, you know, cradle to grave, I see brand newborn babies. And you may see this in in family members where the parents are struggling in the relationship. Now they have a new child and they're trying to figure out how to take care of this baby. They're not sleeping. They're not getting along. And how can you make sure that everyone is safe and reaching their maximum health potential? There must be a, a thousand different ways that family dysfunction can present. What are, what are some of the more common ways that you see in your practice? Lack of communication is probably the most common thing where, you know, Sister Mary lives in Oregon and has concerns about grandma, but is only available by phone on Tuesdays, the third Tuesday of the month from 1215 <laughs> to 1230, but wants to have her say, but it's actually Brother John who is bringing Grandma to her appointments, but, oh, wait, he doesn't actually have health care power of attorney or any knowledge of what her situation may be. Sure. So these are the sorts of things that we're trying to sort out. So what is a takeaway that people could have from learning from other just, people's pain? <laughs> absolutely. It's just really encouraging people to communicate with their family members. I think end of life is one of the easiest examples to, or a concrete example to, to give to people, making sure your family knows what your wishes are so you're not in a situation where you need to be making a decision and you're, no one's really sure what that decision would be. So communicating early on in life before things are dire about what you would actually want. That's definitely getting away from the anxiety and depression theme, but but I think fitting along with communicating within your family members. Well, the example you gave about uh, parents that are bringing home maybe their second baby mm-hmm. or something and the stress starting to get to the whole family unit, that's a that's a good expect uh, that's a good example as well. Yeah, and you know, when I see the second baby for a new hospital follow-up, I am checking out the medical issues with the baby. Is the baby gaining weight? Is the baby eating well? But I'm also trying to scope out how are they doing, and do I need to bring them back sooner than the two-month well-child visit just to lay eyes on them and make sure that they have a point of contact, um, or or are they going to be okay? When you do uh, recognize some uh, mental health issue like anxiety or uh, depression, uh, do you try to involve uh, more than not just the person but other family members? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, my goal is always to 
involve as much of both the healthcare team and family team as I'm able to, because then we have the most success of actually making some improvement. Um, with mental health concerns, we do know that an integrated system results in better results in terms of actual remission of anxiety and depression. And so, um, you know, my goal is always to have backup, you know, not, that I'm not the only person managing this or knowing about it, and then also um, try to convince the patient, um, you know, certainly confidentiality is paramount, but convince the patient if it's a teenager, you know, can I talk to your mom or dad? If it's a 20-something person, is there a person in your life that you would like me to speak to? Or if it's somebody who really doesn't want me involving anybody, I just continue to bring it up on a regular basis. I just wonder when uh, somebody comes in with indigestion or, you know, some sort of stomach issue and you say, you know, let's talk about the role of stress, how this might be affecting. Do you have patients that go, oh, yeah, you're probably right? Or do they fight you on that? It depends. Some days are, you know, on a great day, they make the connection (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they say, you know, you're right. I think that this fatigue that I've been having is directly related to the increased stress at work. There could be some And (laughs) And those are the really good days when I think, oh, perfect, I'm getting through. And and other times they're really quite resistant to that message, which I'm not surprised because people don't feel good. And when you don't feel good, how can you necessarily be super rational about what you're experiencing? Well, thank you, Dr. Cozine, for your insights into treating anxiety and depression and family dysfunction in the primary care setting. Again, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine is a family medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. It was nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Cozine. We'll take a short break. When we come back, high blood pressure can lead to heart attack and stroke, so controlling it is important. We'll hear from a heart specialist about 10 ways you can manage high blood pressure without taking medication. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 70 million Americans, that's one in three adults in this country, have high blood pressure. And the CDC says only about half of them, 50% or so, have their blood pressure actually under control. Because high blood pressure can lead to serious and sometimes deadly consequences, including heart attack and stroke, it's important to control high blood pressure. Often such control is done with medication, but sometimes those medications can come with unwanted side effects. Changes in lifestyle might also work. Well, here to talk about how you can lower your blood pressure without taking those medications, without taking a prescription drug or drugs is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, heart specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Dr. Kopetsky, welcome back. Nice to have you on the program Thank again. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tracy. Are there really 10 ways that you can control your blood pressure without medication? At least that many. <laughs> In America, we're the land of plenty, believe me. You know, before you, you you start on that list, tell us what high blood pressure is. You know, they've changed the, the parameters and the guidelines a couple of times since uh, that I can remember. So what is high blood pressure now, and what do those two numbers mean? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a top number and a bottom number. So say 120 over 80. 120 is when your heart's contracting or pumping blood around your body. The 80 is when it's supposedly relaxing. So the 80 is the lower one. The 120 is the higher one. We put, always put the higher one on the top. Both of them can cause problems if they're too high. 
the high number, the top number, if it's too high, over about 140, 150 in general, depending on if you have diabetes and how old you are, is too high. The 85 is too high if it's above that on the bottom. Okay, so 140 over 85. Those yeah. are the, that's what you use yeah. as kind of guidelines. Yeah, it's a pretty general number. If yeah. either number is higher than that, you got it. Yeah, on average. And you gotta take it at different averages. You know, I, I tell people to take it not just when they get up in the morning, but also after stressful events, like watching the evening news, which can be very stressful <laughs> these days, you know. Well, you, we know that a lot of people are taking prescription medications to try and control their blood pressure. We also know that a lot of people who have been prescribed a medication for their high blood pressure don't take it because right. it's a disease that doesn't cause any symptoms. So aside from all of that and, and the problems associated with it and the side effects, you've got some ways that we can actually lower our blood pressure by lifestyle changes, right? Exactly. All right, we're ready. At least a quarter of the of people in this country on li- blood pressure medicines can get off them. No a quarter kidding. of yeah, them. A quarter of them. If they listen to you. If they no, if they did what we're going to talk about. <laughs> okay, all right. The uh, a big one is weight. Every pound of weight you put on is an extra five miles of blood vessels your heart has to pump. One pound equals five miles of blood vessels, okay? No. So your heart pumps a hundred... Just to uh, pump blood to the fat. That's right. So your heart pumps a hundred thousand times a day. You gain one pound, that's an extra 500,000 miles your heart has to pump blood through. Two pounds, a million miles. You get the math, okay? (laughs) You don't even need a calculator for that. Now, that's incredible. It's incredible. And your heart has to work so much harder. When it has to work harder 100,000 times a day over time, that's going to get you into trouble. And that's just, you broke it down into one pound. One pound. So even losing just small amounts of weight can make a big difference. Huge, yeah. Five to seven pounds can make a huge difference. Hmm, okay. That's number one. Uh, a big uh, big deal, of course, is salt. We eat too much salt in this country. Uh, that's well uh, been well described. And hidden salt. That hidden salt. Is Probably the biggest problem. Well, it's interesting, Tracy, that you say that. About 95% of the salt eaten in this country does not come out of a salt shaker. Mm-hmm. So like you say, it's we didn't add anything. Oh, doctor, I never add salt mm-hmm. to my food. You know, don't even have one on the table. Not even on the table, right. <laughs> does your wife cook with it? Well, yes. Well, of course she does. You know? <laughs> and if you go to a diner and you see the salt shaker, they have rice in it. Why do they put rice in it? Because the rice absorbs the water. That's what happens in your body. It's more fluid in your blood system, so more fluid in the pipe, the higher the pressure. Salt, number two. Number three. Salt, number two. Number three is fruits and vegetables, and eating at least five servings of fruits and vegetables, with a serving being a tennis ball. And you may say, oh, I see, so you eat the fruit or vegetable instead of the salt. <laughs> well, no, that's it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but there are things in fruits and vegetables, the skin of them especially, the pulp of them, the fiber, that lower our blood pressure, irregardless of the salt or the sodium. Very good. And they taste good. And they taste good. <laughs> right. Some of them. Come on, Tom. All right, what else? <laughs> if you put enough ranch dressing on them. <laughs> the, um, the activity, you know, being vigorous leisure activity. I try to cut the E word out of my vocabulary <laughs> because people do not like exercise. They, uh, 40% of Americans associate exercise with the word, and they pick a word, they pick hate. Mm-hmm. We like really? vigorous leisure activity, though. And so whatever you want to do, just do intervals where you go harder for about 60 or 120 seconds, hard enough that you say, wow, this is really hard. I can't keep this up very long. I'm going to give out, but don't give out. Slow down, get your breath back. What does that do? Within just seconds of going hard like that, you know, you start to feel the muscles, Tom, when you're out running around your neighborhood. You feel the muscles burn. Well, the muscles send signals to the heart. It says, heart, I need more blood. you got to pump more. They send a signal to the blood vessel. Blood vessel, you have to open up. The heart's going to be pumping more blood. If you don't open up, I can't get the blood. So opening that blood vessel 
makes your blood pressure go down in the long run. In the long run, hmm. it goes down. Okay. And it stays open after you stop exercising. Now, so far we can do all that. Now, what else you got on that list? Pretty Where are good. we at? Number five? Number, number five. Number, number five. five. The uh, sleep apnea is a huge cause of high blood pressure, really? meaning that you don't breathe adequately at night. There's about half of the people in this country with sleep apnea have high blood pressure. Half of the people with high blood pressure in this country have sleep apnea. So is it chicken or egg? Which one is it? That's a good question. Well, it's usually overweight. It's that it comes because we gain weight everywhere. We gain it in our throat, and we uh, obstruct when we breathe at night. So if so, you lose some of the weight, you might get rid of your sleep apnea, too. Exactly. You okay. can help it tremendously. And if that doesn't work, you got to get one of the CPAP machine. Whatever you got to do to get to get over the apnea, right? That Whatever you got to yeah. do. Sometimes yeah. a device will help. I, I talk to patients, and they say, I don't want that Darth Vader mask. I don't <laughs> want to wear that thing at night. I said, not necessarily that. You, know, you may be able to put a tennis ball with duct tape on the back of your PJs. <laughs> Just don't lay on your back. It may be positional. It may be, need a little appliance. You put in your mouth. So are you saying that if you would stop or limit the sleep apnea that your blood pressure would go down? Correct. Okay. Number six. The uh, alcohol. You know, a little bit of alcohol is actually what we call a vasodilator, vaso blood vessel dilator enlarging. So the bigger the pipe, the lower the pressure. But that's only a couple of ounces of wine or, you know, one drink. More than that, you start to constrict. And because alcohol is converted into a, a compound called acetaldehyde, which kind of sounds like formaldehyde, Tom. And you know what formaldehyde <laughs> is? Preservative. It pickles us, right. <laughs> so it pickles your arteries and they get stiff. All right, number seven. Tobacco, smoking. We knew it was going to come. That it's a vasoconstrictor. Vaso mean blood vessel constrictor makes it smaller. The smaller the pipe, the higher the pressure. All right. And it'll go down within minutes of Very stopping good. smoking. And I tell people, well, you know, I, I don't smoke, but my husband does. You know, mm-hmm. say, so, well, you know, if you get it, you smell it, you inhale it, you inhale it, you absorb it. All right, number eight. Uh, well, caffeine. Oh, you know, we're the, I'm darn. sorry. <laughs> we're now the, we've gotten to the <laughs> right, heart of the matter. Right. This is the, uh, we're the coffee, uh, you know, consuming uh, generation here. And it is also has a vasoconstrictor in it. Now, I mean, a cup, fine. That's fine. But it, these people that drink cup after cup after cup all day long, it can certainly uh, stimulate your heart, make it beat harder, constrict your okay. blood vessels. Okay, number nine. Well, believe it or not, stress can be an issue. and um, It raises your blood pressure. Well, it's it, it has to. I mean, that's the flight or fright. You mm-hmm. know, we need to be able to run away from that saber-toothed tiger and motivate all of our muscles and, and, and blood pressure to get going. And the same thing here. Even after all of these years and all of these generations, we still have that caveman yeah. inside of us. And number 10. Well, number 10 is uh, what if you can check your blood pressure at home. You know, if you don't measure something, you can't change it. And measuring blood pressure, there are all these apps now. We're in the age of apps. If you have an iPhone or an Android or any of those, you can get an app and get a little blood pressure cuff. You wear the blood pressure cuff. You put it on for a minute or two. It measures it. It Bluetooths it wirelessly to your phone. It'll measure it. It'll record it. It'll average it. It'll send it, you want to, to your doctor. It uh, really can help you. And then you can see what it is on the average and hopefully get under control. There you go. And at least 25% of people, if they carry out what you have just told us, they can get off their high blood pressure medication. You bet. That's not a light subject matter either. I mean, I, I do know people who have stopped taking their heart medication because of the side effects. So mm-hmm. it's not just, oh, it's just a pill I take every day. It is called now high blood pressure, the most preventable cause of disease in the world. Well, and there's 10 lifestyle changes that can help you lower your blood pressure without medication. Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, heart specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. That's our program for this week.
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 